Good evening, everyone. It's uh, wonderful to welcome you to St. Melitus College. And um, uh, if this is your first visit here, if you've not been here before, just um, do you want to raise a hand? Wonderful. There are a few people who are uh, um, new to this, this building. Um, uh, if you don't know about us, uh, St. Melitus College is um, a uh, theological college of the Church of England. It's been here for, well, not on this site, but it's been uh, in existence for about 10, 11 years. Uh, we've been here for about four or five years, I think, now. And um, uh, we train ordinands for the Church of England, uh, lay students who want to study theology around London. It's a very exciting place to be. Um, but uh, this tonight, you come to the first of a new series of uh, McDonald lectures. And, and the McDonald lectures are nothing to do with hamburgers at all, I can guarantee. Um, but they are a series of lectures. We've had one series of lectures which came to an end um, uh, earlier this year. This is the beginning of a, of a new series of three uh, lectures which have been uh, enabled through a very generous donation from the McDonald Agape uh, Foundation uh, based in the US and that's in partnership with us here at St. Melitus College. And um, uh, we are delighted to welcome our, um, our lecturer for tonight, Professor Catherine Tanner. I'll introduce her uh, properly in a moment, um, but it's particularly good to welcome all of you uh, here tonight as well. Um, we always seek to uh, try to do our theology here in the context of, uh, of prayer uh, and worship. And so uh, as we begin our evening together, let us, let us pray. Let's take a moment to let the thoughts, cares of the day settle in our minds and to focus our attention, our gaze upon the God who beckons us, who speaks to us. So Father, Son and Holy Spirit, we thank you for the opportunity tonight to think together about our world, about our economy, about how we relate to one another. And we pray for that deep imagination to rethink our world, to see how it might be different, to see how this world might work when your kingdom comes. Enlighten us, we pray, this night as we seek to discern your way for your church and for your world. In Jesus' name, amen. So the format for this evening is uh, will be familiar to those of you who have been to McDonald's lectures before, and that is that we uh, start with a a lecture, which um, Professor Tanner is going to give uh, for us in a moment. Um, then it will be followed by a half an hour um, discussion up the front, which uh, Jane Williams and uh, Donna Lazenby and I will uh, um, engage Professor Tanner with um, in conversation for half an hour. Um, and that will become part of, some of you may listen to GodPod, which is our theological podcast here from, um, uh, from St. Melitus College, and uh, that will be part of that series. And then there'll be a chance for, for open questions. So the way we want to try to do that is um, to give you the opportunity to, to tweet or text in uh, your questions. 
So as uh, the lecture continues, as the discussion continues, if you've got a question, uh, you don't have to save it up. You can tweet it or, question or, or text it in uh, right away. Uh, so if you want to do that, the um, details should be there. You can text it to that number there, so you might want to make a note of that number. Um, or you can tweet it uh, with hashtag SMC, SMCD. And uh, that'll be picked up by Mark here in the, in the front, uh, who will then collate the questions, and then we'll be able to uh, hopefully uh, get a selection of those questions that can be uh, fed through uh, towards the end of, uh, of our evening together. So it's a chance for uh, any questions in the audience. Now, it may be we get a chance um, to do some open, open questions as well, but we've often found that being a really good way to uh, filter through so we get some really good questions at the end uh, of the evening. So um, uh, there are, just a, in case I forget to mention it, at the end of the evening, uh, there are two other lectures in this series uh, on the 17th of October. Um, Tom Wright will be here speaking on uh, Saving the World, Revealing the Glory, Atonement Then and Now. And then on the 28th of November, Professor Ian McFarland uh, from Cambridge University will be speaking on the problem of the problem of evil. And there are flyers uh, with uh, little cards about those which you can take away from with you uh, tonight if you want to uh, on, the, um, on the chairs uh, and at the main doors. So on to tonight. Um, uh, we are really pleased to have Catherine with us tonight. Um, Catherine, you're very welcome, and uh, we're delighted you come to uh, speak to us. Uh, Catherine is the Marquand Professor of Systematic Theology at the Yale uh, Divinity School. She's the author of many books, um, including The Economy of Grace, published back in 2005, Theories of Culture, uh, A New Agenda uh, for Theology, uh, Christ the Key, written back in uh, 2010. She's a, a past president of the American Theological Society, which is the oldest theological society in the United States. We have a lot of older ones here. We have most older things here, but you know we don't brag about that kind of thing. Um, and in this last, uh, over this last academic year, she's been delivering the uh, the Gifford lectures uh, at the University of Edinburgh uh, in Scotland. And um, uh, we are, of course, at a time in our na national uh, and continental life of great crisis and questioning. We have a new uh, prime minister on the way. We sounds like we know who it is now today. Uh, we of course have had the um, the big shock of Brexit. We don't know what, what that will mean for the future. Uh, over the past few years, we've had the refugee crisis, uh, which is still uh, still happening. It's not so much on the uh, horizon on the front pages now as it was, but it's still there. And in many ways, you could say all of this are all of these are products of our economic system. There's a large sense, I suspect, amongst many people, um, uh, that uh, capitalism and its future is a really big question for us, what happens to our economic system, which is why this is a very good time to look at this question together. So uh, Catherine's title tonight is Christianity and the New Spirit of Capitalism. And so we're really looking forward to what should be a fascinating evening. So uh, we'll hand over directly to Catherine now. Thank you very much. Well, thanks so much for that, uh, Bishop Graham, and it's wonderful to be here, and thanks to you all for coming. Christianity has the capacity to expand our imaginations beyond what passes for common sense in uh, the present capitalism of today, where finance disciplines every form of economic activity along with government policy and practice. That's what I'd like to convince you of this evening. 
There's an ethos or spirit to this new finance-dominated configuration of capitalism, encouraging people to abide by its dictates, getting them to conform to its directives. Christianity expands our imaginations, I'll argue, by fundamentally undermining this ethos, in particular the way that it demands that individuals assume personal responsibility for their lives. This ethos has many other aspects which I've explored in the recent Gifford lectures that, was, that were mentioned, but I'll limit myself to this particular aspect um, this evening. The current economic scene is finance dominated in that finance generated profit has an enormous uh, importance. Profit in the financial sector, that is banking, insurance, real estate, is a growing percentage of national incomes when compared with the industrial or service sectors. Profit from financial dealings is also of increasing significance to non-financial firms. For example, car companies in the United States routinely make more money from loaning money uh, to buy cars than from selling them. Contemporary capitalism is marked furthermore by increased financial activity. That is, the amount of money and frequency of transactions in finance dwarf that of other economic activities. It's not uncommon, for instance, for the money changing hands on foreign currency exchanges in a single day to equal that of the whole of world trade in a year. This shift to finance is no doubt propelled by the oversized profits to be made there when compared with industrial production or non-financial service provision. While clearly aided by tax policy and reserve requirements for investment banking, in principle, financial dealings simply have the capacity to be far more profitable than other ways of making money. One can literally triple one's money overnight. This is, this is partly a function of volatility in financial markets. The price of assets on financial markets typically rise and fall quite sharply and rapidly. But it's also a result of the common use of leverage in financial dealings, that is the use of borrowed money to make financial transactions. If I buy a stock with my own money for $100 or 100 pounds and the price of that stock goes up by one pound the next day, my rate of return is obviously far smaller, 1%, than if I'd initially borrowed $99 to buy it. If I bought it with my own money, I had 100, 100 pounds and now I have 101 pounds. Uh, if I borrowed the 99 pounds, I would have doubled my money from one to two dollars minus whatever interest and principal were paid on the loan of 99 pounds in the meantime. But uh, the current economic scene is finance dominated also in that finance calls the shots. Finance disciplines other forms of economic activity along with government policy and practices, shapes them to its own image for its own purposes. First of all, other non-financial economic activities try to match its profitability in the effort to attract capital and keep it. Rate of return on investment must be as high as possible, as that is assured by cost cutting and productivity gains. Corporations must make do with as few workers as possible at the lowest possible wage, and they must be worked as hard as possible. In the effort to attract private capital, government offices are run in a similar fashion. Companies and governments are managed, moreover, to increase the value of the financial assets pegged to them, company stock values, government debt, even at, even at the expense of their own primary products, the provision of non-financial goods and services. 
Where their ends conflict, as they often do, a company isn't run to ensure long-term profits from the selling of cars, perhaps, but to increase the short-term value of its stock on the stock exchange or to pay back investors in its corporate debt. Government policy prefers debt repayment to service provision, cutting the latter to ensure the former. And government policy is designed to maintain the attractiveness of its bonds rather than encourage economic growth where those policies conflict. For example, government policy favors low inflation via a low growth strategy that often comes at the expense of high unemployment in order to maintain the value of government-issued debt and thereby keep its bonds attractive to investors. These management and policy directives designed to increase the value of financial assets and not simply match their profitability also tend towards cost-cutting and demands for greater productivity, making do with less. They're a counsel for corporate and government austerity, if you will, cutting the workforce, making people work harder, whether in private corporations or government offices. Cutting costs in the case of government also means cutting service provision, since when you're talking about governments and not corporations, service provision is a cost and not uh, a source of uh, profit. It also means getting people to be what the government wants them to be, a healthy, economically energetic populace, at the least possible government expense, making their citizens make do with less, and thereby increasing their productivity as responsible citizens, if you will. An ethos of personal responsibility comes in here for both cost-cutting and productivity purposes. For example, work management within finance-dominated capitalism typically demands individual attribution of responsibility for what's produced. If one's to get the most out of every worker, individual effort has to be made the basis of remuneration. Performance pay is, is therefore something of a norm as an efficiency-maximizing tactic in the workplace. Employee wage levels are not set across the board on a shared group basis. They're not set, for example, according to the general sort of job performed, with differences in pay within that same pay grade determined by a criterion of possibly widespread applicability, such as seniority. Nor are wage levels even established on a case-by-case -case basis by group performance of particular tasks, every member of the group rewarded together with the same bonus, say, for a job well done. Despite the fact that jobs are often organized through a network and require teamwork, all of which hampers assessment of individual productivity, every effort is made to evaluate individual performance and match pay to it. In the effort to save costs and make more efficient use of scarce resources, states commonly hive off the functions of welfare onto private market-based provider, providers and throw individuals onto their own resources in purchasing whatever they need for their own health and happiness from them. The mechanism, is he the mechanism here is very similar to that used by finance-disciplined, often debt-strapped companies for the purpose of stream streamlining, streamlining internal management and reducing its costs. Management is severely delayered, meaning that rank-and-file employees are now forced to take on themselves functions previously performed by middle managers whose ranks have been decimated in a cost-cutting scheme. Rather than take orders from anyone higher up, each individual is to take the initiative and own their own work, 
No one is there to spoon-feed them directions. They have to be responsible themselves for designing the nitty-gritty details of their work lives. In doing so, they open themselves up to a kind of individual liability. When things go wrong, charges of mismanagement will fall on these individuals themselves, rather than on the company itself, which has relinquished any responsibility for managing them in any direct way. Similarly, in the case of finance-disciplined states, responsibilities for addressing the risks that often threaten the well-being of their populations, illness, unemployment, accident, for example, ones previously assumed by the state itself at its own expense, are now shifted onto the affected individuals themselves. They're required by the state to secure themselves against those threats, using, often using private means, by purchasing, for example, individual insurance coverage. Social insurance against such risks, a social sharing of them, is thereby replaced by demands for individual prudence. Take care to protect yourself. If you don't take effective measures to prepare for the worst and to position yourself to make the most of whatever hand you're dealt, you'll have no one to blame but yourself. A welfare state hollowed out by financial market discipline promises to individualize profit. Smaller government means keeping more of one's earnings from oneself those earnings increasingly won't be socialized in the form of taxes for redistribution to others via welfare benefits. But the flip side is that one's downside risks won't be socialized either. You're on your own when things turn ugly. This is supposedly all for your own good and for the good of the wider society, according to the usual ways of thinking that support such policies. Generous welfare provision comes with a moral hazard. It encourages a culture of dependency that saps people of their initiative and willingness to work. The more social welfare, the less inclined people are to make the most of themselves. One therefore owes it to oneself to assume responsibility for oneself in ways that make one less of a burden to others. Individuals become much more efficient in the management of their own lives, more skillful managers of their capacities and resources, of their human capital, when they bear the costs of failure themselves they become less likely thereby to ever need help from the state. Not just the state, but individuals themselves that make up its population have an interest in furthering their own health and economic well-being. Who knows better than those individuals what they need and want to get by and how to get it? Best then to leave it to them, having to assume personal responsibility for failing to achieve one's ends, as the state now requires, simply leads individuals to more efficient use of their own resources for their own greater profit. Because having to take individual responsibility for failure incentivizes a population to make productive use of their individual capital, states no longer aim to produce a risk-free society, a society that is in which no one would have to worry about what would happen to them if, say, they were to lose employment. State policies that aim to diminish welfare provision indeed increase the risks that individuals face on the assumption that such risks can be both good and bad. States leave it up to individuals then to decide the sort of risks they're willing to run in what remains a highly risk-filled world, a world organized often by way of state policy to foment the precarious character of individual fortunes. When it is offered, state welfare provision also tends to have an individualizing effect. Individuals are not due welfare benefits in virtue of their class membership, simply because they have a right to such benefits as citizens, for example. Instead, a citizen is able to claim benefits only in virtue of having made a kind of individual contract with the state, 
and in that sense, he or she claims them as just such an individual. The state offers benefits to, to a particular individual, not to a class of persons, once that individual agrees, in other words, to make a return for them. In return for benefits, welfare recipients agree, for example, to look for work and take any job offered, no matter how poor the pay. States and corporations force one to be individually responsible for one's own life, not just by leaving one to one's own devices, but by putting one in competition with everyone else. First of all, um, you're in competition with more people. For example, in the labor market, one is in competition not just with members of the local community for job openings, but potentially with every worker on the planet. And competition takes an unusually uh, direct form. That is, uh, competition is no longer mediated by impersonal market mechanisms, for one. Performance pay using relative benchmarks for superior performance is an easy example of competition turned now into very direct rivalry. Rolling through a very long typescript. Direct rivalry, rivalry uh, relative uh, benchmarks, and how that uh, foments direct personal rivalry. One's employer doesn't determine, for example, that three hours is the minimum time necessary to perform the job well, an absolute standard of performance, with everyone matching that time or going below it, getting a bonus. Instead, bonus-worthy performance is determined by assessing, uh, is determined, sorry, by surpassing one's co-worker's performance. That's a relative standard in which excellence is established over and against what other people do. The standard for excellence being relative, if someone by superhuman effort manages to turn in a time of two hours while everyone else comes in at three, that one person could very well enjoy a bonus for excellent performance alone. The use of bell curves in management decisions about employee pay and retention heightens this same effect. To be safe, an employee has to come in above the curve, that is, above the average level of worker performance. Coming in below it means a pay cut and puts one in line to be fired. But the curve shifts, the average level of performance goes up as all workers make greater efforts to beat the current average and as workers who repeatedly fall below it are progressively let go, leaving only the very best workers behind. Just because the performance average is constantly being ratcheted up by these means, at some point or other, unless one can keep pace, one is eventually quite likely oneself to fall below the average and be let go. Everyone is potentially under threat from everyone else in such a pay and retention system. The gains made by one's coworkers can only portend one's own downfall. Secondary financial markets are also directly competitive, in this case because trading is not primarily externally mediated by anything outside the market itself. Trading among participants in a stock exchange, for example, is not typically a function of their independent individual assessment of what underlies the value of the stocks traded, an underlying value external to the market in that it could be established apart from the buying and selling in the stock exchange itself. The price of stocks, in short, typically doesn't reflect what market participants independently of one another 
have judged the company issuing it to be worth. Those prices instead reflect opinion about the stock itself rather than the company. For example, opinion about that stock's likelihood to rise in price because of greater demand for it in future on the exchange. Prices indeed don't even aggregate what people individually have assessed the value of that stock itself to be. They instead simply reflect the general state of opinion about that, what everyone currently agrees the stock is worth. Prices converge around that consensus in opinion. Because it's this consensus in opinion that makes the price of a stock rise or fall, the behavior of market participants is determined for good reason by deliberative processes in which everyone is trying to assess what everyone else thinks. The opinions of others become everyone's direct concern in this way. In contrast, moreover, to ordinary exchange markets where someone wants to sell whatever, what somebody else wants to buy, everyone in these markets wants what everyone else wants. They share the same objects of desire and therefore strive to keep others from them. They all want the price of what they've bought to go up and to cash out to sell what they've purchased at the height of the market. Rather than have a shared interest in the same investments, they all have, one might say, simply a shared interest in the liquidity of those investments, which is what a secondary market is designed to, to provide, like a stock exchange, to be exercised at just the right moment. One might think the abstraction of such a shared interest would lessen the potential for competitive rivalries, one isn't, after all, fighting with others over the same potentially scarce material objects of enjoyment. But exaggerated forms of direct rivalry remain. Thus, all market participants can't sell at the same perfect time. There would be no one left to sell to in that case. What one is fighting over, indeed, is the timing of the exercise of liquidity. That timing makes or breaks one, and everything depends on gauging correctly what other people will do in order to beat them to the punch, buying or selling before most other market participants do. Because finance and finance discipline markets are so unusually competitive, one cannot expect other people to be willing to help you. What is no reason to expect that they will want to help you, taking it upon themselves to help of their own accord, since doing so would only very obviously come at their own expense. In a finance discipline corporation, for example, my helping you to get a bonus by, say, performing for you some urgent task that being at home with your sick child you weren't able to address yourself, just makes it all the more likely that I won't get a bonus. But there is also nothing about the way these markets are organized that would bring about their helping you even inadvertently, by way, that is, of a so-called invisible hand. The hand of fi finance-dominated markets, as I've just said, is not so invisible since the mechanisms for market coordination so often involve person-to-person, -person, quite intentional forms of competitive rivalry. Unlike simple commercial markets for exchange, the sort of markets that Adam Smith talked, talked about, it's not just that one doesn't intend the good of others. What one does out of self-interest is not in fact good for them when markets are organized by personal rivalries. Moreover, the coordination that does remain behind the backs of market participants often ends up being, in contrast to the invisible hand of ordinary commercial markets, not for the good of others either. There are plenty of unintended consequences in labor markets organized uh, by the effort to best others, for example. What ends up happening, however, is what nobody wants, near universal defeat in the effort. Rather than being mutually beneficial, these markets tend to turn the actions of each participant into a form of self-sabotage. It's in principle impossible, for example, to permanently secure one's personal value to one's employer through efforts to best others. 
The, efforts of the, the effect of those efforts can never be finalized or completed. One never ends up simply having, having a personal value as a kind of achieved state to be counted on. Because of the purely positional relative character of the goods being sought, all, there's always more of the race to be run under constant threat from one's competitors. Finance-dominated capitalism makes in individuals unusually dependent on others for success in ways that ironically force one to try to distinguish oneself from others, to, ha to act in, significant sense, in a significant sense independently of them if one is to profit oneself. For example, one's own ability to profit within financial markets depends in an unusually intense way on the actions of others. Whether one profits or not has everything to do with what other people decide to do. If they buy what you've already bought, believing it to be a good investment, then one profits. To the extent they decline to buy, one's own profits suffer. It's not enough, therefore, to buy the stock of a good company. One needs other people to do what you are also doing, just ideally not ahead of you. Indeed, in financial markets, one's own independent thinking is often overwhelmed and buried within commonly held opinion. For good reason, since following the herd is typically the way one profits in markets that move in tandem with market opinion. It doesn't matter what one thinks oneself if other people don't share that opinion. If you decline to buy because you think you know better than everyone else, that just means you lose, up, lose out on the run-up in prices that everyone, will, everyone else will enjoy without you. Market participants, therefore, often act against their own better judgment and have the tendency, indeed, simply to discount their own opinion to the extent it runs contrary to common opinion. A consensus about market opinion can solidify in this way, even when the majority of market participants think in their heart of hearts that nothing, nothing lies behind it, that is, when each of them believes that common opinion to be false. This exaggerated dependence on others forces one to act independently of others in order to profit oneself. One has to be quicker than everyone else, buying and selling before others do, in order to turn any profit oneself, any big profit at least, oneself. Similarly, in one's work life, profiting oneself is ensured only by refusing to admit one's dependence on others. One convinces one's boss, say, that one was responsible for all the really important contributions that helped one's team succeed in the assigned project. And for that reason, one's own remuneration goes way up, while theirs takes a hit. And one may, may very well believe this oneself. The whole work environment encourages one to think that one is simply being paid what one deserves, rewarded for superior work performance that makes such pay one's due. Now, what might Christianity say about this sort of assumption of personal responsibility for success or failure, and the way it affects one's relations with others? It seems to me that the character of Christianity's own project of bringing one's life into alignment with God's will runs directly contrary to such an ethos. This is fundamentally because, such success, because success in such a religious project is not one's own doing. Christ is the motor that initiates such a project and pushes it along towards completion. Success in such a project is therefore nothing one is encouraged to assume personal responsibility for. One is indeed called to work out one's salvation in leading a different sort of life, but doing so remains Christ's gift. Prog progress in that project of self-reformation is achieved only by way of Christ's own working in and through one's own activity. 
To the extent one contributes something simply of one's own here, apart from Christ, one impedes such success through sin. Working independently of Christ in any way that would allow one to claim responsibility oneself for that success is to leave one alone with, with one's sin. Because Christ brings salvation, because Christ brings it about, conformity to God's will, success in one's calling, cannot simply be one's own individual responsibility. While it does require one's own efforts, it doesn't take place without one, behind one's back, so to speak, one's success in it is not fundamentally contingent on those efforts. One's profitable employment in a religious project is secured by somebody else. It's taken out of one's hands at the most fundamental of levels. One is taken care of by God. One therefore has nothing to fear from even the bleakest moments of one's own sinful incapacity and failure. For these reasons, any success, any success achieved in the pursuit of one's religious project does nothing to establish one's individual personal worth over and against others. Indeed, to the extent one can claim personal responsibility for it, such success never amounts to much. Compared to the sinless standard of Christ's own life, the significance of relative difference of differences in achievement by graced sinners is reduced to nothing. All radically fall short. Indeed, a life fully dedicated to God as Christ was is an all-or-nothing affair at its root. One is either defined by such a way of life by virtue of one's relation to Christ, or one isn't. As a qualitatively distinct form of life, enabled by Christ's life within one, it's fundamentally not the sort of state that can be approximated by degrees or approached incrementally. The degree of success that marks our own achievement concerns only the degree to which our lives man manage to exhibit such a qualitative change of state, which is Christ's doing and not our own. But whatever the success achieved on that level, even were one successfully to, to, to display such a new life in Christ throughout the whole of one's life in every respect, that still doesn't permit one to distinguish oneself in any fundamental way from others. They are capable of the same thing you are, and with Christ's help will one day achieve it too, by virtue of what you share with them. Gone thereby is any point in trying to gain some sort of comparative advantage over others by besting them in the pursuit of religious ends. One's individual worth as someone graced by Christ is not fundamentally dependent on how one stands relative to others. The wider world's search for distinction in competitive contests is repudiated in this way without setting up a new, specifically religious, form of them. The standard against which one measures one's person here, Christ's own way of being, is absolute rather than relative. The means of meeting that standard are available to all in the form of Christ himself, rather than being conditional on individual effort. And the state that marks that success can be shared by all without distinction. My gaining salvation, that is, does not exclude anyone else from it. Salvation is not a scarce good to be fought over. Nor is it accessed through partition in ways that suggests others' enjoyment of it might take away from mine. Christians hope one day to bask altogether in the fullness of the very same good that's God's glory. Indeed, the more I think salvation is a private property secured by excluding others from it, the more I have reason to worry about my ever attaining it. The more God has turned it into a kind of exclusive possession for some by, say, setting conditions on eligibility, the more reason I have to worry, too. Concern for relative position-taking is, in fact, discouraged altogether here. 
What matters in the end is one's relation with God, one's value in God's eyes, and not one's relative worth measured against others. Beyond all the jostling for position that leads to profit within finance-dominated capitalism lies a God whose own value doesn't go up and down and who may, may thereby provide a stable source of one's own. Irrespective of how I may be positioned in relation to others, God remains my creator who has deemed me good as God's creature and considers me worthy of consideration, indeed an object of supreme love in Christ, however far I may have fallen from God's intentions for me. Valuations based on relative position are certainly never, never separable here as they are in financial markets from the external underlying asset, so to speak, God. However far people may sinfully stray in their relations with one another, they never float free in purely self-contained, purely self-referential fashion apart from that one God in and whom they ultimately find their value. The follow of the leader effects of everyone's competitive attempts to keep up with the profits of others in finance-dominated capitalism is short-circuited here by the contrarian possibilities of such a standard of value independent of one's position in relation to other human beings, God. There's no profit to be gained here from simply matching the behaviors of others by following their opinions about what's a good bet. Nor is one impelled to search to secure one's worth in the eyes of others by proving one's relative value over and against them. Aside from the matter of how such achievement is me measured and attained, it also makes little, makes little sense to assume individual responsibility for success or failure, given the way this religious project singles one out, not as an isolated individual, but as a member of a pool. For all one's differences from others, which will of course come out in the distinctive ways one pursues such a calling, one remains a creature just like them, a sinner just like them, an object of God's redemptive concern just like them. One's differences from others have the capacity neither, neither to overshadow nor pull one free of those shared conditions. Christian beliefs about a shared origin and fate, irrespective of individual circumstance or individual merits or demerits, entail in some a refusal of the privatizing of risk and reward at the heart of finance-dominated capitalism. One fails, morally and otherwise, in the company of others, and one gains salvation by God's grace rather than on the basis of any distinguishing features that make one stand out from the crowd. If Christianity encourages one to think of oneself as part of a pool, it nevertheless does not do so in any way that would lessen or submerge one's individuality within the group. In creating and redeeming one in Christ, God doesn't see one simply from within a general perspective encompassing the whole, but sees one as the particular person one is, one specific character as a person, what sets one apart from others is the object of God's concern. It nevertheless, nevertheless remains the case that one's value in God's eyes is not conditional upon the particular achievements that distinguish one from others. What remains of value in God's eyes, the same, when remain, excuse me, one remains of value in God's eyes, the same object of concern to the very same degree, even if one fails completely, as everyone in some fundamental sense does, in the effort to do what God asks. God remains one's savior, even as a sinner. Indeed, sinners are specifically the ones God comes to save in Christ in an entirely gratuitous display of affection for them. Individuals do set themselves off from others by way of their particular achievements. That's one aspect of their individuality, and therefore, to the extent God's loves, God loves them as the particular persons they are, God will love that about them too, to the extent, of course, it doesn't simply amount to a sinful grasping of distinction from others. But those achievements are not the fundamental reason persons are the valued subjects of God's concern. 
that concern precedes the, those achievements and doesn't vary with them. God doesn't love you more when you succeed than when you fail, if greater love means demonstrating some increased concern for your well-being. God doesn't, in that sense, love the saints, should there be any, more than God loves those whose ongoing failure in their religious project warrants continual repentance and supplication for divine mercy. If anything, it's the reverse. God's wrath is temporarily for ultimate is temporarily for ultimately benevolent purposes directed specifically against the self-righteous. The fact that here one depends on God rather than on oneself would presumably promote a willingness to recognize one's dependence on other people, too. The profit-making mechanisms within finance-dominated capitalism that require the refusal to acknowledge such dependence by claiming simply for oneself what, what others have helped one achieve would in that way be hindered. The religious project is indeed a cooperative project. Other people are in it with you and have the capacity for that reason to help you by, for instance, supplying examples of what engagement in that project looks like, for better or worse. But more than that, one's very dependence on God requires some degree of dependence on others for its communication to oneself in the form of a life project. Other people are necessary to communicate the relationship to God that empowers one's religious project. God is the only one capable of empowering such a project, but God never enters one's life directly apart from the human mediation of it that starts with Christ, his own humanity, and that extends its influence through the incorporation of other human beings. Christ's own influence remains irreplaceable, but upon his death, his very own influence is conveyed through the other persons, human persons, who form a community of life with him in a very literal sense. Humans who are dead to themselves and that they now live his very life their own lives in that way in the process of being fundamentally remade as a kind of extension of his. Human beings who are already being remade in him, witnessing to him, orienting their lives by him, are necessary to convey the very influence of Christ himself to others in Christ's physical absence. But it's also important to see in this connection how dependence upon God doesn't collapse into dependence upon others. One is thereby not encouraged to submerge oneself within the community of others for the sake of one's own profit in the way the extremely intense dependence on others in finance-dominated capitalism encourages. Everyone else, aside from Christ himself, fundamentally fails in the religious project that Christ empowers. Everyone else continues to, see, to some degree or other, that is, to struggle against sin. To the extent that they influence others by virtue of their own persons rather than by virtue of Christ's own influence within them, they therefore tend to impede the religious projects of others just because of the sin that remains in the way they manifest Christ's influence upon them. Indeed, even were they to conquer sin entirely and show forth Christ with complete transparency in their own lives, they would hamper the religious project of others just to the extent that influence on others were to make their own persons the focus. A focus on themselves would mean their own influence had replaced that of Christ. They would have become themselves the motor for transformation of others in a kind of sinful substitution for Christ. Ironically, one cannot imagine a more corrupting influence than such a self-referential form of religious communication on the part of persons who otherwise, for all intents and purposes, appear to be saints. For the same reason, a focus on the relative saintliness of the human communicators of Christ's influence say in ways that encourage a refusal of communion with religious leaders who appear more sinful than others, 
is similarly corrupting for a communally fostered religious project. One should never indeed be dependent on others in the way one is on God. Doing so turns those others into idols with a self-defeating, destructive effect on one's own religious project. While they may indeed be helping one to succeed, the others upon whom one depends cannot secure one's profit as God does. They're just as vulnerable to sin as one, as one is oneself. And for that reason, one must constantly work to shore them up in contravention of the facts of their own lives as if they are to, if they are to pretend to perform the sort of work that only God can perform. One is thereby enslaved to such idols, forced into constant, unending, and ultimately futile work for the benefit of the very supposedly saintly persons that one counted on to ensure one's own profit. Although one is part of what is in principle a mutually supportive community in which people try to aid one another along the way to a common goal, one can, once the power of Christ is communicated to one by others, go it alone if necessary without, that is, any further help from them of any intentional sort. One can, in other words, make progress in a religious project while surrounded by sinners who influence one, therefore, in highly distorted ways by, for example, drawing attention to their own saintliness in self-congratulatory fashion. One can make project, if necessary, alone without their help in any direct sense of that, since one is empowered to do so by Christ and not by them. The religious project of Christians, therefore, does not stand out from contemporary capitalism simply by being a cooperative project in which every person has their own particular contribution to make. Although profit comes to be privatizing by refusing to recognize it, financial capitalism is in fact a cooperative project of that sort too. No one can produce anything of value in this form of capitalism or any other for that matter, apart from the activities of others converging through the use of machines in a coordinated effort to bring about what none of them could alone. They may not be intending to help one another thereby, but if what I'm saying about Christian community is correct, Christians may not be very obviously doing that either. Their good effect on others, for example, their communication of Christ to others, is very often a kind of unintended consequence of their own horribly flawed efforts to lead a Christian life. While they remain dependent on others, at least for the initial communication of Christ himself to them, individuals can succeed thereafter for all intents and purposes alone in a religious project because of what empowers that, dependence on God rather than dependence on other people. And it's perhaps by virtue of that that the Christian religious project differs most fundamentally from a current capitalist one. It's not enough then in the effort to counter the way people are encouraged to seize profit over against others in contemporary capitalism, to counsel that everyone should be valued commensurately with their contributions in a cooperative project as if that were the fundamental contribution of Christianity to an understanding of properly organized sociability. While it perhaps never lives up to it, pay commensurate with one's individual contribution to team outcomes, for example, is the very ideology of current capitalism. What's unusual about Christianity, and what's much harder for contemporary capitalism to fathom, is the idea that one's efforts retain their value even apart from any obviously positive contribution, intentionally positive contribution, to a project requiring the, co the cooperative coordination of tasks. Everyone's failure in the effort is, for one, something to be expected. What is also unusual about this communal body compared to the social forms of finance capitalism is its specifically non-rivalrous manner of social coordination. 
personal rivalries over relative contributions or achievements within the body are prevented here because social relations with others are always being mediated through some external third thing, God. Members are not, in fact, directly coordinating their actions with one another, based, say, on their own estimation of who is succeeding or failing in such a religious project, in what respect or by how much. Each one is instead fundamentally trying, as that particular individual with that specific history, to conform his or her life to God's will, and in the process, as a kind of secondary effect, their respective actions become, to the extent they ever do, mutually supportive of one another. That is, the more each is successful in such a pursuit, the more likely it is that others will be too, by way of their influence, their own efforts complementing or supplementing those of others, and so on. The God who stands outside these human relations is in this sense entering within those relations to do the coordination of them behind their backs and independently of their own intentions. Although relationship with God is communicated via other persons, becoming so related to God through them does not require one to be actively and directly engaged with them in any other respect. That is to be engaged with them as anything more than communicators of Christ's own influence. To the extent they do so properly, others are trying indeed to communicate a relationship with Christ that turns one away from them to God. In this sense, one comes in the first place to be actively related to others socially only through the relationship that each one has with God independently of others. Although everyone does want what everyone else wants here, to live a life that's transparent to the life of Christ within one, the members do not in fact compete with one another for those same goods because of a certain detachment from them that the relationship to that third thing God enables. God enables one to give up one's attachment to the achievements that others would also like for themselves. If one is genuinely committed to God rather than to the human good God makes possible, say saintliness, one should be willing to give that saintliness up, let someone else have the distinction of displaying it, whenever attachment to saintliness threatens to displace commitment to God. One might object here that because social relations in Christianity, as I've described them, go by way of something outside of them, the community formed exhibits no especially strong horizontal ties. But in the Christian case of mediation of social relations by something outside of them, one is not simply partaking separately of what one at most knows everyone else is enjoying separately too. One's own enjoyment is to the contrary, directly fed, magnified by, by theirs. The experience in short is something like watching a sunset with somebody else. One is very glad someone else is there to share the experience. The external mediation of relations to others here by way of a third thing, the sun, hardly means one is indifferent to those others, isolated in one's own private experience. One cares to the contrary about them in the character of their own experience. If, for example, something is hindering their enjoyment, say they're in pain, it would be better for all concerned to remedy that. A genuine community of enjoyment is being set up here in virtue of the peculiar character of what externally mediates it, something that can best be enjoyed with others. Indeed, the more of them, the better. There's no point indeed in aiming at the sort of good that discourages rivalry if one only ever enjoys it alone. Enjoying it alone hides its character. Trying to do that, enforcing that, insisting on lonely enjoyment distort that, distorts that good's character. It shows one fundamentally misunderstands it. The character of God is that establishes the proper manner in which one relates to God makes all the difference here. Thus, if one were related to God as a part to a whole because 
Divinity was itself like something extended in space, subject to partition and found in greater or lesser quantities, depending on whether circumstances were hostile or favorable to it, then yes, possession would amount to the always potentially conflict-ridden matter of who can amass the most of it. One gains more of God by literally having more of God. On a Christian understanding, to the contrary, the God who is nothing like any of them, and in that sense outside them all, can be enjoyed as a whole by each and every one of them through a kind of direct link in each and every case with it. The very same object of love and knowledge is made the basis of a common vision and desire. The community here is intense. People are united, that is, in ways that overcome all division, but such community is never predicated upon the erasure of the individual places from which, in each case, desire and vision begins to end in God. What brings them together to unify them is simply the object upon which they all rest. What I hope I've shown by this point-by-point -point comparison is a thorough opposition between Christian assumptions about personal responsibility and what contemporary ca capitalism asks of people in, uh, when it takes this finance-dominated form. I therefore believe Christians have every reason to resist its dictates. Thank you. Catherine, thank you so much. Fascinating things to think about there. What we're going to do now is to uh, rearrange the furniture up here a little bit. And so that gives you a, a bit of a time just to um, maybe turn to your neighbor and um, uh, just to share your reactions, any particular questions you've got, um, something you'd want to, um, uh, to respond to. Uh, it may be kind of formulating a question in your mind, just um, talking, that to, talking that through with your neighbor. So if you can do, do that just for a few minutes, uh, then we'll rearrange up here and then we'll go into the discussion and with some time for questions a little bit later on. Okay, thank you. Okay, well, we will uh, make a start. And um, for those of you who are listening to this on GodPod, uh, we are here discussing um, a lecture which is a fascinating lecture we just heard from Professor Catherine Tanner. And uh, our um, group today that we're discussing is uh, Jane Williams, who is always part of GodPod pretty well. Hello. 
uh, and also Donna Lazenby, who is also a tutor in uh, apologetics and spirituality here at St. Melitus. Hello. And um, Catherine, Catherine Tanner, who's our guest for today. So um, uh, you just uh, listened to a fascinating lecture on Christianity and the, the sort of new spirit of capitalism, just exploring um, themes of um, the kind of essentially competitive and individualizing nature of of um, capitalism at the moment and how Christianity offers a very different vision of, of life from that. And so we just want to explore some of that through some of our questions here and then get some questions from the audience a little bit later on. Um, but if I can kick off with a, uh, a theme and a question, I suppose um, one of the, I suppose, a, 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 when you think of um, grace and the divine life, they are by their very nature limitless. They are things which, in some ways, they're, they're not scarce resources. They're things that can be always multiplied, can be shared, and the more one gets of grace and divine life, the more there is of it. And I suppose you, one could come back to that and say, well, when we come to the economy, when we think of actually um, the scarce goods of this earth, there, there is a some limit to them, and therefore that inevitably brings about a sense of competitiveness, which actually a kind of um, well, an economy of grace, to use your phrase in one of your earlier books, uh, doesn't have. Um, how would you how would you how do you sort of respond to that? The sense that um, you know in transferring a, a kind of an idea of grace and the divine life as a model for um, for how we relate into the kind of the, the actual uh, world of a, of a where the things that we are trading and exchanging oil, coal, goods have a limit to them. Therefore, they inevitably bring in a sense of competition. Or do you see that differently? Do you see there's a kind of a, a correlation between grace and the divine life? Yeah, I mean, there are a number of different ways to approach that. I mean, one way to approach it is just to talk about, talk about different forms of competition. So it might, in fact, be the case that within finite life, some sort of competition is inevitable because of scarce resources. One wouldn't need to or want to deny that necessarily. But I'm, as I was doing in this uh, lecture, I'm trying to distinguish different sorts of competition, and um, uh, you know, particularly when you're talking about this uh, very intense personal form of direct rivalry, I'm saying that it's characteristic of this particular form of capitalism and not characteristic of other forms of capitalism, say where competition goes by way of uh, pricing mechanism or something that is preventing direct uh, conflict between people. I mean, that, that was supposedly one of the kind of benefits of commercial society and that uh, people were not in direct person-to-person uh, -person rivalry with one another. They, they were in some kind of competition. And, you, know, you wanted to sell your goods uh, for more and that meant that somebody else had to, um, you know, there was some kind of conflict. People obviously didn't want to pay as much. But there, there are different forms of competition that are characteristic of different forms of capitalism. So this is a form of competition that I'm trying to directly oppose. But the other way of approaching the issue is just to say that uh, I'm trying to um, kind of counter what I see as a, an artificial separation between what it means to live a graced life um, in virtue of one's relationship to something, God, that's not a scarce resource artificial separation between a graced life and then the rest of your life. And I'm talking about a form of life in, empowered by Christ's grace that is all-encompassing and also encompasses one's economic relationships so that 
something is altered about those economic relationships. I mean, if, if a person's whole lives are changed, it, it means that their lives in community and economic uh, connection with others, uh, that's also transformed in some way. Do you, do you think there can be a kind of, um, a kind of redeemed competitiveness? I'm, I'm thinking of, of a text like Romans 12, you know, outdo one another in showing honor, which introduces a kind of reverse type of competitiveness as in doing good as opposed to sort of, you know, grabbing resources for oneself. One thinks of um, some of the, of the language in the, in the monastic tradition mm -hmm. of Christian faith, which, is a, which, which can be almost a sort of, you know, competitive saintliness, which um, sometimes is sort of strays into a, a sort of, you know, I'm better than you type thing. Um, but in other senses, you know, in its positive sense, can be a, a kind of this, this, this sense of um, wanting to spur one another on to, to good works, as it were. So can this competition in itself something to be avoided or can it be redeemed? Are there kind of models within Christian faith of a, of a kind of redeemed competitive? Yeah, well again, I think you, you need to be careful about what you mean by competition there. I mean, on some level, yes, of course that's true. I mean, you're living in community with others where the object is to live a life that's transparent to Christ's own grace. And yeah, I mean, you can make, of course, relative distinctions of success in that project and yeah, use that as a way to spur uh, others to, uh, the same heights, if you want, but, uh, but I'm trying to, yeah, I would say that that's fine, but uh, that's, I think you have to be careful about what, what exact form of competition that is, and it can obviously devolve into certain competitive uh, competitions over saintliness, if, if you will, that uh, are very distortive of uh, Christian re relationships, and yeah, I think mimic uh, forms of competition that are found in the wider world that are not really for anyone's good. I, I was so very struck, Catherine, by um, some of the things you were saying about how we come to value things. And I was very struck by your analysis of the fact that this form of capitalism actually in the end means that nobody can secure their value, nobody can know that, yeah. what, mm -hmm. that they have any real worth. Somebody might come up behind you and do it better and take a bit more. Um, and the, how that really contrasts with the picture that you, you then put of um, how um, the value that is held, that every, every individual whose value is held by God, that value is unshakable. Um, and it's just a really interesting analysis because, and um, one that feels quite counterintuitive, doesn't it? Um, that, the, the, that you sort of feel that capitalism is all about valuing things. How come it doesn't work? Yeah, well, again, it's, uh, I'm trying to do a careful analysis of, uh, you know, how exactly value is being established. So a lot of what I'm drawing on there is, it's not, you know, theological material there, but it just has to do with the difference between, a, as I was saying, a relative benchmark, relative standard versus an absolute one. And that, you know, the, the absolute, absolute one might be God, but there are all kinds of versions of absolute uh, standards and uh, there's a lot of literature out there that's you know making basically the point that I was making I'm getting it from them <laughs> which is that uh, this insistence on a relative benchmark has the effect of kind of rat ratcheting up the level of performance that's being required in a kind of unending uh, struggle to <laughs> achieve something that's not achievable and yeah there's plenty of literature about that so I'm just drawing the parallel between what's being discussed in that literature and, and what uh, Christians could say of a similar sort about where an absolute kind of value or benchmark or standard is figuring in their own 
discourse and identify it with God. I mean, Rowan does this all the time, I think. And that's really interesting because it is quite important. You're not just talking about Christianity versus everything else. You're no. talking about a way of seeing the world. Yeah. Whether you're a Christian or not. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Thank you so much, Catherine. I think what I particularly enjoyed about that, well, lots of things actually, but one of them was just such a systematic approach, that sense of the setting up so clearly of what's unhelpful um, with the financially focused economic model as opposed to this beautiful vision that we're given in the life in Christ. Um, you definitely talked about this, but I would actually enjoy sharpening it up um, even more, probably because I teach Christian spirituality. And as Graham was saying, there's actually quite a strong emphasis on effort often in, in that world, rightly or wrongly. So perhaps it's about what kind of effort. But my question, just to sharpen up, is what are we actually responsible for? Um, you definitely talked around it. So I found I was getting particularly interested when you were talking about um, the, the sanctification of the creature, the developments um, of engagement with an ongoing project that actually does require our effort. And you almost seem to be, a bit like Graham was suggesting, you were redeeming um, the... Um, uh, the idea of competition, I felt there was some redeeming of the idea of the individual, so the individual isn't lost or subsumed in this great system of eternity, but is actually held as a particular who makes particular contributions, like their particular achievements. And then that started to make me think about what's the role of the Holy Spirit in this as the one who brings the particular creature into the kind of creature they're meant to be. I realise that's quite a vast doctrinal question. So no, but that's, sorry, that's, that's, that's how the, I think. That's, no, 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 that's the doctrinal issue. At that's stake. the doctrinal issue. Excellent, I nailed one of those. Very good. Well but, done, but this is, thank you. But, but so, so it's kind of a two-pronged question in a way, which is, is what are we responsible for? And perhaps what is the role of the Holy Spirit? Because it was the Holy Spirit's work I was feeling really pressing through. The sanctifier, the one who engages with the effort, the one who redeems our particularity, not in this collapsed individualism. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, there's an enormous <laughs> lot of stuff that can be said in that connection. I hope you'll help me at some point. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm trying to come up with an understanding of the way the Holy Spirit works in communal life, where you're doing justice to the very messy, sin-ridden character of every human community, including Christian communities, uh, but at the same time not uh, kind of reducing the spirits working to that messy process. So that's, you know, the emphasis here on this third external thing that's doing the coordinating. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, that something is coming out of those messy conflictual processes that is not actually uh, sort of governable or intended by uh, the participants. So like it's not a planned economy, if you want. Yeah. Uh, um, yeah. But that is, that is the crucial question, trying to come up with an understanding of the, the way the Holy Spirit is at work in human communities that would, um, uh, you know, I'm trying to, to lay out, again, fairly carefully, uh, how uh, a community would be organized by the Holy Spirit in ways that would look different in interesting ways from the way uh, communities are ordinarily organized. In this case, in the economic case, uh, in, in contrast to the kind of ordinary sense in which the invisible hand, you know, uh, organizes market society supposedly for the good of everybody. I'm trying to avoid that. It's not exactly that. On the other hand, it's not like a planned economy where we're intentionally, uh, on the basis of our own, you know, well-intentioned efforts, trying to coordinate our activities so that something good, uh, you know, some form of 
beneficial well-being, material well-being comes out of that. But yeah, to put Christianity into conversation with a number of different models about how people are brought together for cooperative projects so that it has its own distinctive kind of characteristics. I guess you could take that question of the spirit's role in informing new forms of, of, of human community in a number of different directions. And I suppose I'd, I'd kind of like to tease out the, the role of the church in this. As yeah, that's what I was talking about. Although. Exactly, that's right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, in in terms right of, um, do you envisage, because I guess you could, you could go in the direction of saying, actually, we're, we're looking for a kind of reformed capitalism uh, where the church is active in um, uh, agitating for trying to bring about a change to our, our ways of social relating within society that reflect a little bit more of this relating to this third thing, which is God? Um, or are we actually talking, or do you, do you envisage more a sense of the Christian community as the place in which this new kind of relating is to be exemplified, where there's a new kind of economy that is brought out? And of course, that word economy can be used for money, but it can also be used in the kind of theological sense of the, of the divine economy the divine way of relating to us, um, the divine law, as it were. So would you want to take it in, in which of those directions would you want to take it in terms of a, a, a working towards a kind of reformed capitalism within our... Yeah, well, I'm, I'm, again, I'm trying to avoid yeah. a kind of either or there. Sure. Yeah. I mean, uh, uh, yeah, that uh, in the language that I was using, the Christian project as a communal project is not limited to what you do in church, uh, because uh, church uh, is not uh, all-encompassing. You know, it doesn't encompass your work life. It doesn't include your political life. It doesn't include all sorts of things that should also be reformed um, uh, as a matter of uh, Christian practice. So again, there's, you know, I don't see them as uh, all that distinct. And do you, do you see, I mean, can you give us sort of ideas of what kind of things uh, on both, in both of those spheres, what would a, a new kind of way of relating within a church context look like uh, economically? What would, a, what would the beginnings of a reformed capitalism look like? What kind of changes do you actually see coming into play within our economic um, ways of relating to one another within the wider society? Yeah, well... Um yeah, again, that could be answered on all kinds of different levels, but um, I mean, clearly the, the current economic system is not working for the well-being of the majority of people who are participants one way or another in it. Uh, and certainly that has to be changed. There are all kinds of ways that that could be done. I mean, in the, in the wider lecture series, I mean, I'm trying to lay out, again, pretty carefully what's particularly problematic about what I'm saying is a kind of finance discipline form of capitalism, that it tends to... Uh, uh, kind of siphon profit up um, and often, you know, target uh, in ways that are uh, more extreme than usual, target those who are at the lowest rungs of uh, the economic ladder or who are obviously in some way excluded from it, like the way debt works. Uh, yeah, you know, in industrial capitalism, it's... I mean, you can exclude lots of people from uh, the uh, process and they don't have any money to buy things, but ultimately there's a capitalist interest in ha people having some money to buy stuff. And here, you don't even have, you don't need people to buy stuff, you just need to have uh, 
you know, whatever money they have, you need, you need to have a mechanism to take it from them, which generally means putting them into debt. Uh, yeah, so there are all kinds of things that can be done to interrupt uh, this particular way of making money. But in a sense, oh, I get the impression that you're not really very interested in that. That's up to us. I mean, you started by saying something like Christianity expands your imagination beyond common sense. Yeah. Fantastic, fantastic line. Yeah. And so what, uh, am I right in thinking that part of what you're doing is challenging us to reimagine how we form human beings? Yeah, that's the primary focus of the lectures overall. That uh, what, what I think is distinctive about this, one of the things that's distinctive about this form of capitalism is that it takes an interest in your person. It's not just concerned about what you do at work. It has an interest in your person. It has an interest in your whole <laughs> being and is you know, actively through a number of uh, mechanisms trying to reshape you as a person, not just shape your behavior, but shape you as a person. And that uh, I think you know, uh, religion is Christianity, but other religions too, is one of the few things in uh, contemporary life that has a similar person-forming capacity and that it its objective is to shape you as a person completely, totally, in ways that affect the whole of your life. So if you want to counter a system that has an interest in your person and is attempting to shape you as a person, you know, fundamentally change your understanding of your relation to yourself and your understanding of your relation to other people, you know, all, all <laughs> extensively, not just at work, but at play, at home, in your family, in your politics, blah, 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 then you need a, a counter-person-forming uh, force, and it seems to me that Christianity and other religious forms are one of the few things that can do that. And I think, I mean, I find that very exciting. I think that um, there's something about Christian education that becomes very important at that point. I mean, I, I think one thing that strikes me is that perhaps if St. Paul was with us, he would be saying that this um, economy defined in this financial way, this is, the, this is the, the, the place in which we live and move and have our being, and it's almost invisible to us, and it is forming our character yeah, and just yet. to call to be more self-conscious about what's happening to you so and to be able to uh, appeal to your own Christian commitments absolutely. in ways that can distance you from that. So then to be able to, to expand our imaginations is to create yeah. critical distance. Yeah. It's to open up those spaces. And uh, I mean, this is more anecdotal, but just to give like a kind of a living example of this, um, there's a school I know very well. Um, and uh, they had a project for the children recently, and I just thought this was fascinating. They asked all the children to create a superhero which they've now made in papier-mâché and have hung from the ceiling. That's significant. You're asking very young children in a primary school mm. to think about what defines a superhero. And they've obviously spent quite a few hours thinking about the values this superhero would have. They are resilience, mm. independence, um, and uh, risk-taking, and problem-solving. And they are all highly individualistic. I noticed that there was not a single quality there that was about um, compassion or working in teams or sharing ideas with others. And I could really feel the formation of the character around that sense of a collapsed individualism. So um, that I was, I was really sensing here is an opportunity for Christians to speak into the formation of the character of people mm -hmm. in a way that I feel is resonating with mm -hmm. what you were speaking about. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. So thank you. So we're really talking about being more aware of the ways in which our economic system shapes our character and our desires mm -hmm. and our ways of relating yep. and becoming more self-conscious about that. And, oh, then, and therefore also beginning to, to imagine other ways of doing it, mm -hmm. uh, which, is, which is, comes through that relating 
to a third thing, which is God himself. Yeah, I mean, there are all yeah. kinds of other aspects that I wasn't sure. able to develop. Sure. But basically, yeah, to view your Christian commitments as yeah. person-forming, yeah. and that means sure. they have an influence on all your activities, all your behavior at work, outside of work, as a consumer, blah, blah, blah. And uh, just to think more uh, uh, explicitly about what those Christian commitments actually mean. And to pray, which, of course, in terms of being with a capital B, brings you into relation with that other. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, we're talking about... Christian practices of prayer, repentance, uh, confession, all kinds of things of that sort, mm -hmm. definitely. But you do, in a way, you, you need something like the, the, the Christian imagination and understanding of how people are formed before you can see that that's not what's happening yeah. in the society that we're in. I mean, you can be so enclosed in the economic system that we're actually in that, that it never really occurs to you that you are being formed by it until mm -hmm. you see there might be another pattern of formation that's available that, that simulates the, the, the Christian imagination. I would guess it would, it, that, that's quite an unusual thing that you've said there, that we are being formed by the economics. And once you've said it, then you think, oh yeah, of course we are. But before you say it, it's, it's not so clear, is it? Yeah, no, no, I'm trying to make that all very explicit. But uh, I mean, another issue is just that it's, it's not obvious what your Christian commitments, you know, how your Christian commi commitments should shape you. Obviously, there are lots of uh, different uh, yeah. understandings of what Christianity is all about and what it means for your day-to-day -day life. Uh, so I'm, uh, you know, really arguing a normative case here. I mean, I'm, I'm coming up with this particular understanding of what it means uh, to live in community with others who are shaped by Christ. But clearly, especially like in a U.S. context, uh, uh, you know, often uh, religious right. I mean, they're, they're informed by their Christian commitments. I'll give them benefit of the doubt there. And they think they're fully compatible with uh, whatever you want to call it, a neoliberal agenda, which, you know, your own, your, your own, your, your, uh, you know, you're individually responsible for um, your own moral development, your own economic success. It's all of a piece. And yeah, so a lot, the, a lot of what's at issue here is just a, a call to Christians to just think hard about what their Christian commitments actually mean. I mean, I have my own understanding of what those Christian commitments mean and how you should be formed accordingly, but this is a, uh, a question, I think, for every Christian, every Christian denomination, every Christian parish to, to think through that. Um, it's, it's also, interestingly, a, a, a question to be put to people with, who wouldn't say they had a, a religious faith. Mm -hmm. Sure. At all, because we are all interested in in what kind of people we want to be, mm -hmm. um, and actually just sort of standing back enough to say, ask that question about the life you're living: Is it making you the kind of person that you think you'd like to be? Is it making you your superhero? Mm. Um, yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, I mean, what else? I mean, I'm certainly not saying that Christianity is the only thing that does this. I think religions do this generally, but it, it's another question whether there's anything besides religion that helps you to do this, like in other uh, cultural contexts. Uh, I mean, there were, whatever you want to call them, philosophical spiritualities that w were of this sort. They were person-shaping. You know, you, you, were, you were developing a worldview that uh, affected the whole of your person and the whole of your engagement with, with life. And it doesn't seem to be the case that there are a lot of uh, kind of philosophical spiritualities, if you want to call it that, that are kind of live, um, effective uh, forces on the current scene. 
although not exclusively. When I was giving lectures in Edinburgh, I mean, some of the member and members of the audience were humanists, and they had uh, what is in effect, you know, a religious spirituality. They were thinking very deeply about their their own worldview, their own beliefs about how things work, how what sort of people they, they should be, and they were living, you know, in community with other people with similar commitments, trying to figure that out. Yeah. So it's not exclusively a religious in any obvious way. Well, um, I, I can think of. Um, um, like an atheist like Iris Murdoch, sure. who would be deeply concerned about love. And actually, those um, so helpful what you pulled out with the, the financial, um, almost like anti-values of rivalry and competition, and you showed how self-subverting they are. They're even set up logically to combat one another. They're self-defeating. And all those ways in which, like as Luther would say, that the sin is the heart turned in upon itself. And she would see all those corrosions. And as an atheist would, would be concerned that we live in such ways that those around us are able to expand their realities. And we, we deliberately put certain limits on ourselves so that others can flourish. So definitely there are those other perspectives, which would be more secular perspectives, perhaps, and yet would absolutely be concerned with the same things, I think, with which you are. Yeah. And while I'm appealing to Christian practice in some broad sense of practice as a kind of uh, counter conduct, uh, you know, to kind of interrupt uh, capitalist, uh, the capitalist uh, influence on personal formation. Uh, I'm not saying that, well, you know, like uh, the church is an ideal society. I mean, the, the kind of church understanding of uh, Christian community that I'm putting forward here is very much uh, one that's stressing Christian sin and Christian failure and Christian communal failure. And so you're not distinguishing uh, Christian practice from the wider practice because <laughs> one's ideal and the other one is perverse. I mean, to the contrary, it, it has more to do with some kind of honest recognition of failing within uh, a Christian community and the way in which that community can still be organized in some you know, mutually beneficial way, even though and in and through uh, the failings of its members. Might be a good time to begin to ask if there's a few other questions uh, further out as well. Um, maybe the best thing might be simply just to, uh, if you've got a question, stick a hand in the air and um, the um, microphone will come your way. Uh, if there are particular questions you want to, to ask, um, don't be shy. We've got a question at the back over there. So, um, so I'll, I'll come with my microphone, don't worry. I'll do this one over here. Let's, work, let's, let's, let's just start down here. Thank you, Catherine, very much for your lecture. Uh, our call on earth is to reveal uh, and live God's new reality in the today and to pull back that curtain uh, that we saw, I think, particularly in Jesus' baptism, that curtain being pulled back uh, there. What model of work, of markets, of cooperation, uh, of uh, profit enhancement uh, can we, as the church, encourage and introduce into our society? I suppose, again, what would work look like in the new heaven and new earth? Uh, well, <laughs> the, uh, uh, I mean, the most general thing that I was trying to um, contribute by uh, you know this this broader series of lectures was to come up with a Protestant anti-work ethic. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> oh okay, yeah. The word. Um, so I'm trying to problematize the the value of work in certain ways. Uh, so that's 
uh, partly why I'm having difficulty answering your question. But if it's just a question of, uh, I mean, I think if this is part of where you're leading, I mean, I think churches can be uh, experimental spaces for um, novel economic relationships. I mean, churches, religious institutions uh, have always been, in effect, banks. They're like banks. They were banks <laughs> originally. They pull resources, and that means that they can do innovative things uh, with pulled, re uh, pulled resources. So I, I, you know, I think there, there's a lot of, there are any number of community um, development projects that, that might be encouraged uh, through the use of church funds. So uh, <laughs> that kind of work is what's at issue. Um, then yeah, I think there, there, there are lots of interesting things that could be done, but I'm not exactly sure where you were going with your question. I suppose in Genesis is revealed uh, God uh, created us um, to enjoy, to see his creation flourish uh, throughout then the kind of uh, apocalyptic visions we get of the new world when Christ returns. It's a physical uh, reimagining of his original creation uh, that is restored to its full and proper order. Uh, we as God's uh, created people have a role in uh, continuing uh, that perfection. I believe through <laughs> reading the Bible, we, we will work, uh, we will uh, reap and harvest. And so I suppose, what can we, by uh, looking forward to that new reality, that reality of God's new creation, can we pull that into the today, pull that into the way that uh, we uh, work uh, and see the economy? Just very quickly, <laughs> randomly, I'm an ice cream salesman. Uh, my job is uh, to uh, pull natural resources together, make something delicious, and sell it uh, to chefs. It's wonderful. And the way that we model business uh, is through giving to charity, through good employment. My bonus is not based off of my personal work, but the company as a whole. So we're really trying to challenge uh, that, uh, where it is individualized into a more corporate and cooperative setting. So I suppose, I think there's going to be work in heaven. How can we reveal that today? Yeah, no, that's yeah, a huge question. Uh, um, yes, new heaven and new earth. Yeah, you're, tr you're, you're trying to move towards that, but uh, nobody has a blueprint for what that will mean. So uh, <laughs> Uh, I think there has to be an honest, honest recognition of that. Uh, I mean, the kinds of uh, workplace changes that you're talking about that you have direct experience with, yeah, I think they're, they're probably all of the good. And I mean, even if you don't have a pl blueprint for what the new heaven and earth would look like in a in material sense, you at least know that it's, it's uh, an organization in which uh, you have genuine uh, flourishing of uh, the created order, human beings and the natural world. So, I mean, you've got some You've got some endpoint, even if you don't have any blueprint for how that might be come about. But um, yeah, so I, if that's what you may mean by work, yeah, sure. I think you should be working for that. <laughs> Definitely. We've had uh, loads of questions that have been tweeted and texted in. So if I can just feed one or two of those to you. Um, there's a question here, I suppose, which is, um, should Christians do social investment? What's the place of social investment in a capitalist culture? Should tr Christians be trading for profit to give, 
or does that fuel capitalism? So it's, I guess it's kind of a question about philanthropy in some way. Is that a, a model of um, the kind of old John Wesley, earn as much as you can, give as much as you can? Is that, is that a, a valid um, reading of the economy from a Christian point of view, or actually does that just fuel a capitalist competitive system which um, is not... Well, I don't know about fueling it, but, uh, but yeah, I'm clearly calling for some more fundamental change than that, not simply redistribution after the fact. Um, but that there's something in the matter with the way the profits are generated to begin with and before they're distributed in charitable forms, uh, yeah, charity would be great. But the, the uh, underlying issue is uh, where did the wealth concentration come from to begin with that then is uh, nicely distributed <laughs> in a loving way if possible. But, but yeah, I think the, 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 the more fundamental issues have to do with the way profit is generated and not so much the way it's fine as far as it goes, but it doesn't really address the underlying yep. mm -hmm. character formation, forming characteristic of, of capitalist society. Yep. Yep. Good. And there's some other questions around um, um, the kind of economics of the Gospels. Um, and uh, so one of the questions here is, um, how, what do you make of the economic or financial language of the Bible? The spirit is a down payment parables of investment. I was thinking about the parable of the, the, the workers in the vineyard, you know, who all work different hours, but they're given exactly the same, which it, it just always seems a very unfair system compared to the way we normally kind of arrange work and, and, and um, remuneration for work. Uh, when you read some of the kind of economic language of, of the Gospels, and there's, a, there's quite a lot of economic language there, uh, do you see that um, feeding into your analysis? And do you, do you see different economy being given there? Uh, I mean, the, yeah, there's a, a, there's a lot of really interesting work done <laughs> on uh, biblical, uh, biblical use of economic language, particularly in the New Testament, uh, you know, like Gary Anderson's understanding of sin, the use of uh, language of debt or the wages of sin or, you know, treasure in heaven. Uh, I mean, I've done some research about that. <laughs> I mean, I've read other people's work, <laughs> let's put it that way. But uh, what I'm interested in, and what I think has probably not been uh, emphasized enough in that scholarship, is, is the weird way that that language is uh, being employed. So, for example, um, uh, uh, you know, you gain, say, by giving uh, charitable uh, gifts to others, you gain treasure in heaven, you uh, overcome the debt of your own sin by... Uh, giving uh, charitably to others. All that, all that language uh, is being used in a, in, a, in a rather weird way in that, um, uh, well, there are all kinds of ways of, of developing that, but you know, you're giving away something to somebody else, but you gain a benefit of an extraordinary sort. So it's a very odd kind of uh, gift in that you benefit from it and you get tenfold what you've, you've given away in the form of some kind of heavenly treasure which uh, never rusts, never, uh, can never be lost. So it's, both the recipient and the giver. Yeah, yeah. So I think, I think, the I think giver is one should pay very close attention to exactly how that uh, wage language and uh, payment language and debt language and owing and blah, 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 how the language is being really strangely employed uh, in ways that kind of, it, it seems to me, uh, does more to explode the usual understandings of um, economic exchange. And there's a particular question here about the, the, the parable of the talents and how you would read the parable of the talents. 
in regard to your uh, view of uh, a new kind of economy? How do you read it? <laughs> well, I, I, just, I guess it's a fascinating one because I suppose it does seem to talk about how you invest, how different characters invest. Um, well, it's, it's, in the two versions of the stories are different, aren't they? And you get different amounts, and, and in one story they get the same amounts. Uh, but they're, they're invested in. Um, well, it seems to me it's also it's something about uh, that actually the, the the character of the investment and how it comes back is not necessarily related to the actual capacity yeah. of the mm -hmm. person right. who invests them. Yeah. That's something slightly outside of their control. Yeah. There's an element of so there's an element of so this is something beyond them. And so yeah. I, I suppose I would read those. those yeah, I mean, it's a parable that can be easily read so that it conforms to one's commonsensical understanding. You know, you use wisely what you've been giving you. You know, there are a number of parables that seem to be suggesting something like that. But, mm. but yeah, they're much uh, odder ways of in interpreting the, the story. Mm. I mean, in part, I'm trying to argue in the, the rest of the lectures that will at some point be published that, mm. um, yeah, you are supposed to make the most of what's been mm given to you, for example, but, uh, but the religious project in which you're, <laughs> uh, is a very strange project. It's not like uh, maximizing your resources or you know, maximizing your human capital or making the best of your abilities or something like that. It's a very, very weird project. Um, and, and one of the weirdnesses of it, of course, is that then is that profit isn't for the person. Um, the, the point of the story is, is when the master comes home and you're accounting to the master. Yep. What was his right. mm -hmm. lent to you temporarily, <laughs> uh, and that again is part of this weird capitalist language, isn't it? And I'm, uh, thank you, Jane. And I'm also struck that we're um, slightly told off in the Gospels for assuming that we know how the divine economist works. Mm -hmm. So uh, you're a tough um, giver, and I know how you will repay me. Oh, you do, do you? Mm -hmm. So the sense of that remains a mystery. Quite how the economy is anchored. Quite how things are calculated and weighed is mysterious. There's another question here about um, economics and sin, which you've spoken about a bit. And there's, there's a quote, I don't know whether it's a direct quote or somebody just come up with this, but it says, uh, um, economics is the study of sinful human society. Economic policy seeks to discipline the sinful drives in the economic sphere for the good of society. Uh, is that a right? Would you agree with that? Or is that a, something you, you, you take issue with? That idea that, that economics is basically, economic policy is designed to discipline sinful desires or drives in the economic sphere for the good of society. Is economics that kind of negative thing in that sense? Well, I mean, again, depending on how, what kind of economy you're talking about, yeah, I mean, it, there is something quite interesting, uh, and I think Christians were interested in commercial society for this reason, that it does seem to um, make people uh, benefit one another even when they don't like one another. Um, you know, so that it uh, uh, kind of turns uh, greedy, self-interested people into benefactors uh, sort of against their will. <laughs> um, and that, that is very interesting. Uh, I mean, I mean the, the common criticism of that nowadays is that it, it simply encourages uh, that behavior. You know, it's not just making do with greedy, self-interested people and trying to turn their uh, base uh, instincts into something that will actually be uh, beneficial to, uh, to other people, but that actually uh, foments and encourages and cements uh, those uh, kind of base motivations. And uh, I don't know. I don't know about that. I mean, uh, again, 
Uh, I mean, the kind of Christian position that I'm putting forward here is one that's very, very uh, sin-focused. <laughs> so that, yeah, you really do have to do, you know, if you're going to have a, a, a society, uh, even of uh, well-intentioned Christians, you're going to have to cope with uh, sinful behavior. And, uh, you know, I'm not the sort of Christian theologian who thinks that saints are a very likely outcome. <laughs> Uh, kind of empirically, as <laughs> an empirical conclusion. Um. Good. Let's uh, just go to one or two other sort of uh, voice questions. There's one over here. Um, can we get a um, microphone here in the corner? You painted a picture of modern capitalism, which seems, in a way, very um, unintuitive, almost illogical. Um, if it is so unintuitive, why is it that we continue to subscribe to it? Is it just an accident that we've come to it? Is it, um, or is there some underlying um, greater problem which means we, we almost prefer it to a more logical, intuitive Christian um, ways? For example, is it um, that we've become too hedonistic, um, too individualistic? I well, I'm not sure I understand your question exactly. Could you re repeat it uh, in maybe somewhat different forms? Uh, I mean, so, why is it that, I'm trying to understand your question so a little bit we, better. Why uh, is it that capitalism can suck people in so if this is we, the way why, they're being why shaped? Do, why have we chosen, why do we continue to follow uh, one which seems so illogical? If, um, you know, why do we lack the motivation to, to move to a, a more um, community-based, oh, more mm -hmm. Christian, you know, for example, why is it that people have chosen this um, unintuitive one? Is, as a, is, it a, well, is it because of a great underlying problem is what I'm asking? Um, yeah, I mean, I didn't say all that much about, you know, my understanding of kind of the interlocking pieces of the contemporary capitalist uh, configuration of things. I mean, it, uh, I mean, part of the, I mean, there, there are a lot of mechanisms that are holding it in place uh, that, are, that are very effective uh, means of forming people kind of unconsciously. You know, it's not obvious that you're being... Uh, affected in the way that you're affected. Uh, you know, it's only like after the fact that you realize, gosh, I've turned into a horrible person. <laughs> How did that happen? Uh, uh, so part of it is that the mechanisms are somewhat invisible. They don't make, uh, make themselves obvious, but also they're extremely uh, effective. And in part, they're effective because you don't have any choice in the matter. Uh, I mean, this is something that, you know, I'm implicitly referencing uh, Max Weber's uh, The Protestant Ethic and the Spirit of Capitalism. And, um, you know, he, his language of an iron cage, uh, you know, once capitalism becomes the only game in town and, you know, you don't have any other way of making a living, you are forced to uh, take up roles within corporations, et cetera. And uh, once you're in them, <laughs> they're going to be shaping you. I mean, they're very effective uh, shaping mechanisms. I mean, just like the very simple one I gave about performance pay. That is very insidious, and once you're in it, how do you, heck do you get out of it? Uh, it's very difficult to get out of it. You're in competition with every other person in your corporation to, you know, best them. You know, your uh, pay is effectively dependent on the bonus that you get at the end of the year, and it's very hard not to... <laughs> be sucked into that. I mean, why wouldn't you be sucked into that? You don't have any other choice. I mean, you could quit, but 
think as well, that's also reminded me of as well, is not only are you sucked in and it's the system in which you find yourself, I find that as a preacher, when I then preach a gospel of grace, people find it so difficult to accept that actually life is graced all the way through, that you are created as a creature, and that by grace you are created, sustained, saved and held, and in some sense you have nothing to do but to enjoy and rest in your God. So suddenly you realise it's so hard for that gospel of grace to get traction because so much around us is forming us to believe that this could not be true. It could not possibly all be grace all the way through, all the way down. Which is why you always on God Pod, you never get away with, with the God Pod without discussing Augustine. Um, <laughs> which is why you kind of need that sort of Augustinian sense that, that underneath there is a sort of deep memory of our need for grace, a deep memory of our embeddedness in, in God. And that yes, there are forces around in, in our work. It's a cap the, the kind of structure in which we are caught is one that um that that, that um feeds our desire for competition and rivalry and so on. But underneath that there's something much more fundamental, which is our, our actually our, our sense of belonging to one another, our, our kind of deep memory of grace, which may be hidden under layers of sin and and um and uh, and, and twisted desire but underneath there is still something there which when you preach grace can still resonate with people at that much deeper level. I sense it's true but it's very hard to believe it. Exactly. Wonderful. We've got one time for one more question at the back there and then we'll um, draw to a close in a minute. Thank you and thank you very much again for the fascinating lecture. Um, Boyd Hilton, when he reflects on uh, Victorian philanthropy in his book, The Age of Atonement, suggests that one reason for it is that uh, these great industrialists knew it was hard for ca camels to get through the eyes of needles. They knew that uh, all this money they'd made was a dangerous thing for them to have and to hold, even though they'd probably worked very hard to get it. We've been talking a bit about preaching things which people believe. I wonder how many people today in Western society really believe that it's hard for camels to get through the eye of needles or at least identify themselves as camels and whether there's something we should do about that. Oh, yeah. I mean, in terms of effective preaching, <laughs> maybe that's somewhere where uh, one should go. Yeah, but... Uh, Yeah, I mean, there does seem to be a lot of uh, efforts presently to sanitize uh, incredible wealth. Uh, we don't even need to be a philanthropist to have it sanitized. Um, and part of, uh, partly that's what I'm interested in, just the way in which uh, it makes perfect sense that this level of wealth concentration should exist and it's justifiable by, say, hard work or effort or cleverness or... Uh, Whatever, and you know, there's a need to undermine uh, that uh, comfort level. Um, so yeah, maybe uh, eye of the needle and the camel would be a good thing to trot out to uh, to remind people that uh, one shouldn't be quite so comfortable. More philanthropy, fewer rocket ships. <laughs> well, we have uh, come to the end of our evening. It's um. 
nine o'clock and we want to draw stamps so, out. Um, apologies to those of you who didn't get your questions answered. There were lots of questions that came in that we didn't have time to, to look at, but um, we were able to range over some of the themes uh, that came through from them um, tonight. So, um, Catherine, just a very big thank you to you. No, for, this has been um, great. Thanks so coming much. Over really to, enjoyed uh, this. Giving us some um, just a fascinating lecture, opening up all kinds of interesting possibilities for us and engaging in this conversation as well. It's been really fun to yeah, do that. Thank you. Thank you. So, um, uh, should we express our thanks to Catherine for uh, coming to us tonight? Thank you. And uh, again, just a reminder of the next two lectures in this series. The next one is on the 17th of October, so put that in your diaries, where Tom Wright, uh, speaking on saving the world, revealing the glory, atonement then and now, then 20, 28th of November, um, uh, about a month later, where uh, Professor Ian McFarland, um, former student of Catherine's, um, but now a Regis Professor of Divinity in Cambridge, uh, will be speaking on the problem of the problem of evil. And so uh, do make a note of those and you can grab um, notes about those as you go out. So uh, thank you very much for coming tonight. Um, hope you've enjoyed the evening. Do stay around for as long as you want. There's small glasses of wine, uh, nibbles and so on. They need drinking up, so come on, you might as well take them away with you. And I uh, hope we'll see you next time around and safe journey home. Thank you.